John Wooden was one of the most revered coaches in the history of sports. As a head basketball coach at UCLA, he won 10 NCAA National Basketball Championships in a 12-year period, seven of them in a row, an unprecedented and unrepeated feat. Within this period, his team won a record 88 consecutive games. He was named National Coach of the Year six times. Wooden was named a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame as a player, inducted in 61, and then as a coach in 73, the first person ever enshrined in both categories. He was a devout Christian who read the Bible every day. He attended church regularly, passed away on the 4th of June in 2010, just four months shy of his 100th birthday. Now, Wooden was renowned for short, simple, inspirational messages that were directed to his players at how to be a success in life, um, as well as on the court. But uh, let me just give you one such example. Wooden said, when you improve a little each day, Eventually, big things occur. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but eventually a big gain is made. So don't look for the big, quick improvement. Seek the small improvement one day at a time. That's the only way it happens. And when it happens, it lasts. Well, John Wooden sounds a little like the Apostle John. In his New Testament book called First John, We've been studying uh, together uh, this short letter in a series of sermons that I've titled Finding Real Life in God's Great Story. Now, today, in, in, in today's message, we're looking at chapter 3, and we're going to be challenged and encouraged by the Apostle John to continue to make a little improvement every day, to both believe and behave in ways that actually demonstrate we're God's children who walk in the light. So let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for this brand new day. We thank you for its beauty. We thank you for its joy and power. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done right here on the earth, even as it's done in heaven. So, Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for for the fullness of your name. We ask that it would increase and enlarge in our lives, in our church family, in our community. We pray that your kingdom would come in the ways you know we need, and not just us right here, but next door and Vineyard Kids as well. Lord, would you cause us to grow to look more like Christ and learn to love? Put power on your word to our lives where we need it is our prayer in your name. Amen. When my grandfather, Ben Moser, after whom I'm named, by the way, was still living, he used to tell the same old stories quite regularly. And yeah, (laughs) and he especially liked talking about the first job that he got during the Great Depression uh, when he earned 50 cents an hour. In fact, he carried in his wallet the stub from his first paycheck in 1929. It was only as I grew older that I understood these stories represented the events that shaped who he was, who he grew to be, and the things that he valued. Now, in a similar way, when we read the Apostle John's letters, we'll note that he keeps saying the same things over and over again. And we might be tempted to think or to say, as if we were talking to our repetitive grandparent, like, John, can we just get on with it? (laughs) But then the Holy Spirit nudges us to remember, bless you, 
the Holy Spirit nudges us to remember that John, an old man, perhaps a grandfather or great-grandfather, in the closing chapters of a very long life of having served Jesus faithfully as a leader in the local church, a life filled with both loving and, and serving God, that he was telling us what he really valued, the things that were really important, the things that had formed and shaped his life. And so we then pause and we reflect and we linger on what he wrote in First John. And our hope is that the Holy Spirit will actually speak to us and will encourage us or reprove us or challenge us or provoke us and ultimately cause us to grow to be more like Jesus, that we might experience the meal and not just settle for the menu, and that we'll get to feast on the real life, the real life uh, of Jesus, and that we'll make small improvements every week. Now, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's open to the third chapter of First John. That's towards the end of the New Testament series of three letters: First, Second, and Third John. That he wrote in the in the uh, twilight of his life. The, the, the these letters represent uh, the the last three books written in the New Testament. So Christianity's been around now for about. 60 years, and it's with hindsight of wisdom and uh, and perspective that John writes the things that are most important to him, the things that he most deeply values. We'll begin reading 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we're already God's children, but he's not yet shown us what we'll be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we'll be like him, or we'll see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Now, our 30-year-old daughter, Jenna, uh, lives in Denver and has taken to hiking and climbing what is known as a 14er. This means a mountain that's at least 14,000 feet in elevation, of which there are 55 in Colorado. If the book of 1 John were a 14er, then the text we've just read in the third chapter, verses 1 to 3, would be considered by some scholars to be the summit. It would be the peak. And the view from here is absolutely beautiful. It is stunning, and it's breathtaking. Now, John begins with an exclamation. We read, see. Perhaps more literally, we would say today, behold. We might say, would you take a look at that? It's the kind of expression that you make when you see something beautiful and powerful. It makes you kind of speechless, like what you might imagine it would be standing on the top of a 14er. Wow, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? What are we looking at? Did you see it in the text? How very much our Father 
loves us. Now, the words how very much in the New Living Translation that we use for general understandability actually probably do kind of a clumsy job in English uh, at, at connecting the real force of what John is saying. Uh, it, the words that, that we end up reading, how very much or how great, actually, A, did I just do something weird? It's for the sake of emphasis. Not really, just kidding. Um, the words how very much or how great would probably uh, originally translate of what country. And it's as if John were saying, God the Father's love is so unearthly, it's so foreign to this world that I'm wondering what country it comes from. And the word always implies astonishment. And so we might say in a more germane, earthly way when we read 1 John 3, 1, wow, God the Father's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere is so beautiful and so inspiring and so breathtaking, it just makes me wonder. That's Ben's translation of 1 John 3, 1. That's what we might have heard if we heard John in the original. God the Father's love is the summit. It's the high note of this entire letter. And God calls us his children. Now, that's not just a, a, a title, uh, a badge that we wear, some label. It is, John says, a fact. Verse 1, it is what we are. I often fear that Christians uh, are identified with some designation that has long lost its force. We call ourselves or refer to each other as believers or Protestants or Catholics or disciples or charismatics or evangelicals or a member of the church or a vineyardite or whatever. But John declares that we are children of God. We are God's sons and daughters. Now, the Apostle John uses the language born of God in chapter 2, verse 29, and in his gospel, he uses that language regularly. For instance, in uh, John's gospel, the first chapter, uh, we read verses 12 and 13. But to all who believed him, Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. He goes on to say in the, in the famed exchange with Nicodemus in chapter 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again or literally born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, Nicodemus asked? How can a... An old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again. And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can ever enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Now, the water that, that uh, John refers to here is uh, speaking of our physical birth, because water accompanies physical birth, as, as anyone who's either experienced it 
or observed it, knows. And in this sense, every person on the earth is created by God. Every person that's born knows God as creator. God is everyone's creator. But the spirit in this text refers to our rebirth or our birth from above or our birth by the Holy Spirit. And it's only those who experience this birth from above by the Holy Spirit that know God as their father. All people know God as creator. Only those that experience a birth from above know God as father. Well, how does this birth happen? No one really knows. Jesus uh, went on to say, and recorded in, in, in John 3, don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, and just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it goes, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So We don't know how the spiritual birth from above is accomplished. In the same way that you can hear the wind uh, in the leaves of the tree But you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. Jesus said, so you cannot explain how people are reborn by the Spirit, but you can see the effects in their life. That is, when their leaves wrestle. You can see the proof of it in their life. Jesus never gave a formula on how to receive the birth from above. Jesus did not outline the Roman road to salvation. He did not give us the four spiritual laws. He simply said, follow me. That's it. That's how we uh, learn to become born from above. And then when we follow him, he said, the Holy Spirit changes us. The leaves begin to wrestle in our life. Uh, the old, sinful, selfish you dies. Our sin is forgiven and we are made new and we become God's child. And this happens in as many and as varied ways as there are numbers of people. There is not one template that God lays over our lives on how to become his son or his daughter. It's it's something that God does by the person of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, he imparts his life to us. It is mysterious and beautiful and powerful and breathtaking. And it causes us to go, wow. And because the Holy Spirit now lives in us, John is saying, you can live a life of love, love for God and love for other people. God has deposited his very life in us. We are children of God. He is our father. Now, not only do we not fully understand the precise nature of the process of becoming his children, but we don't understand the precise character of our full inheritance either. Did you notice that in verse 2? John said, we're already God's children, but he's not yet shown us what we'll be like when Christ appears. There's just, frankly, so much about the future state that we don't know. Even though for centuries Christians have spoken with clarity and conviction and a lot of bravado about these things, Masked behind, well, the Bible clearly says, when in fact we just don't know what the Bible clearly says, because it's not that clear at all, actually. If we're honest, Paul describes it this way in his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13. Right now, we see a dim reflection in a mirror. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. He says, we're squinting in a fog, pierced.
peering through a mist. Now, we do know some things. We saw in verse 2, we do know that we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he really is. So the sequence, we do know this. First, Jesus appears, and then we'll see him as he really is, and then so shall we be like him. So you can just think, we will eventually be like Jesus. And you can think back of the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the risen Christ. There's not much recorded there, but each of the authors gives us a little glimpse. Jesus was the same as before he was crucified, but yet afterwards strangely different. Now, he'd been through death, and he still bore its marks by the prints, nail prints in his hands or wrist and the wound in his side. He had a flesh and bone body. He still ate food. Uh, he looked similar, but was slightly different because even the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't quite recognize him. But yet he could appear and disappear at will. He just materialized in a room that had a, a locked door. And so we could say it this way. Jesus belonged to both worlds, uh, this present evil age and the age to come. He belonged to both heaven and earth, and, and that will be what we're like someday. I have a hunch that when we see him at his appearing, as we learned last week, that he will far outshine any pictures or imaginations we've conjured in our mind in advance. We'll see him as he really is, and we'll be like him, and it will cause us to go, wow, that is beautiful, that is awesome, that is breathtaking. And I think John includes it over and over again in his letter to to remind us, because we're creatures of needing to be constantly reminded, that we have a glorious future ahead. Now, if you were going to meet a colleague or a close friend or family member in another country, you might think it'd be worth some effort to learn a little bit of their language before your trip, right? Like, where's the bathroom? Or, thank you, please. <laughs> uh, if you were going for a job interview, you might imagine that you'd wish to learn enough about the company to appear intelligent and to carry on a rational conversation or make an impression with the interviewer. If you're going to meet Jesus, John suggests you might want to clean things up a little bit. Verse 3, all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he's pure. And so this exhortation is consistent with John's reoccurring appeal to walk in the light to both believe and behave in a way that actually reflects our new identity as God's children. Now, the Apostle Paul echoes this same theme in his letters. One such illustration in Ephesians 4 is this. Paul says, Throw off your old sinful nature and the former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God truly righteous and holy. And so when we become children of God and he imparts his life to us through the birth from above, 
in that mysterious process. As a result, God desires that we actually grow up to look like Jesus. That's where we're all headed. I like uh, John Stott, a renowned biblical scholar and uh, theologian, says in his wonderful commentary, The Letters of John, which makes for great bedtime reading, he says, the children exhibit the parents' character because they share the parents' nature. And all of you who uh, are growing a little older know exactly what he means. You look in the mirror and you think, oh, my God, I'm becoming like my mother and my father. Like it or not, that's where we're headed. But uh, we call this, in, in Christian circles, growing in Christ-likeness. We begin to look more like our Father. Christians sometimes call this process... Uh, sanctification. It's a progressive work of looking more and more like Jesus. It's like what John Wooden said. You continually to improve a little bit each day, and eventually things occur. Not tomorrow, not the next day, he said, but eventually a big gain is made. And don't look for big, quick improvement, Wooden said. Seek the small improvement every day, and then when it happens, it will last. And that's precisely what the Apostle John is saying, because you believe that Jesus is going to appear, make small steps every day to become more like him. Believe and behave. Keep yourself pure. Walk in the light. Reflect who God has made you to be. He lives inside you. Now, John is saying that our growth towards Christ-likeness will reach the zenith, the summit of the 14er, we will, we will, uh, reach the zenith when, but not until Jesus literally returns. And so we shouldn't be frustrated that we're not quite there yet. That's the way it's going to be. Uh, we're headed to total Christ likeness someday. And when he comes back, it'll be complete. Now, in verses four to 10, John reiterates then what it means to live as, as God's child today. Let's continue reading. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all who sin is contrary, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins. And there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. And anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what's right, it shows that they're righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows they belong to the devil, who's been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who've been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning, because they're children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers, does not belong to God. So this paragraph shows that following Jesus, or walking in the light, means that we have a transformed character. This text has proven nothing but troubling uh, for many believers. John Stott, in his commentary, offers seven different ways that scholars have historically interpreted these few sentences. 
I'm not going to suggest the definitive uh, way either. I am just going to say it's helpful to remember that John's audience was influenced by the false teaching of Gnosticism. Let me remind you, the Gnostics thought of the flesh or the body as a mere envelope that covered the human spirit, which they believed could not be contaminated by sin, the deeds of the flesh. So consequently, the Gnostics did not think it really mattered how you live. And this wrong belief led to unrighteous, unlawful living. So the Gnostics' wrong uh, belief led to wrong, sinful behavior. And John has been advocating for right beliefs, right behavior. The Gnostics said, you could be righteous without doing righteousness. In other words, they said, you could behave any way you wanted because of what we believe. So in these verses that have been quite troubling to many Christians, like, do I sin? Do I not sin? If I sin, does it mean I'm not a Christian? If I, Because uh, John says, if you're a real Christian, you don't sin. But yet I, I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was born from above, and yet I struggle with sin. So what am I? I'm confused. In these verses, John is not denying the possibility of sin in the Christian life. I think he is arguing for its incongruity in the Christian life. That is to say, it just doesn't belong. Some have taken what John says in verses 6 and 9 in the paragraph we just read as teaching that a true Christian is constitutionally incapable of sinning, that a real Christian never sins. But John had already just got through saying in his earlier chapter that Real Christians do indeed still sin. And when we do, thankfully, there's a remedy. First John 2, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you'll not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before God the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So I think what John is talking about is that, uh, is, is, is our whole habit of life. You notice that he, he talks about those who keep on sinning, or as the text read, those who make a practice of sin as the regular mode in which we live. So children of God may indeed sin or break God's laws in terms of what we think or what we say or what we do or, or what we desire. But John contrasts that single or even repeated acts of sin with someone who just lives in a habitual state of sinning. And John is urging us to avoid all sin at all costs because the power of sin has been broken in our lives and we are no longer its slave. We've been made new. So it's as if sin is below you is what he's saying. The new birth, the birth from above, involves a new nature. You're not the same person you used to be. Verse 9, he says, the seed of God has actually been implanted in you if you are God's child. And the Holy Spirit, the seed of God, is the is the very life-giving power of God. It's what's going to raise you from the dead someday. And so when we're birthed from above, when we become God's child, John is telling us that there's a deep, inward, radical transformation. Verse 8, 
The Son of God destroys the work of the devil. And you are now fundamentally a new and different person as a child of God. And so John echoes what the Apostle Paul and what the Apostle Peter write in the New Testament. Throw off the old way of doing life and put on the new. Now, it takes our active, willing cooperation, doesn't it? It doesn't just change right like that. It's that progressive growth towards Christ-likeness. But John is saying, hey, friends, children of God, you have one new nature created in the image of God. Nevertheless, the Bible says that as long as we live in this present evil age, we've got to deal with what the Bible calls the flesh, sometimes translated in your Bible as the sinful nature, used interchangeably. This can make us conclude that we have two natures. You don't. You have one nature as a child of God, renewed and made right, filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have two natures, you know, one good and righteous and holy nature full of light and truth, and one inherently evil, sinful, unrighteous, full of darkness nature. There's no good dog, bad dog living inside of you, even though at times that's probably how we feel. It's just that the two ages, the kingdom of this present evil age and the kingdom of the future age, live inside of us. And so we live in, in, in the presence of two uh, kingdoms all the time. Our flesh is what has continuity with this present evil age and our former way of life. Our spirit is what has continuity with the age to come, the eternal life, the real life. That life and age of the power to come that, we, that that Jesus said is ours to have, and so the flesh and the spirit are 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 always at work in in our life all the time. Now John says, "There's no doubt about the final outcome. There's no question about who wins." He says, "You're going to look like Jesus, completely like Jesus, someday." So there's no there's no question or challenge as to where we're headed. But in the meantime, John is saying cooperate with the life of God that's already in you as a son or a daughter of the living God. And he's saying, when you collapse to temptation and you actually sin, hey, confess it, receive forgiveness and cleansing for it, and then just get back on walking in the light. I love what uh, New Testament theologian and uh, commentator N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, says in his uh, commentary on the early Christian letters, I'll quote N.T. Wright. He says, we should be doing our best to avoid all kinds of sin all the time, though we surely shall fail. But the failures must take place within a settled habit of life in which sin is no longer setting the tone. We're playing a different piece of music now. And even if our fingers slip sometimes and play the wrong notes, notes that don't belong to the music that we used to play, that doesn't mean we're going back to play the same old music for real anymore. That's good, isn't it? You see, an eagle may dip its wings in the mud, but it is still an eagle. A child of God may commit sins of weakness and still be a child of God. Friends, you are not just a sinner saved by grace. No, you were a sinner, and you were saved by grace, but you've been forgiven, and you've been made new. You are now a child of God with one new nature. Sin is no longer uh, your, your master. 
You're a child of God, made new, created in the image of God. God's seed is within you. And while we remain vulnerable, and there exists the possibility that we will sin from now until the day Jesus comes, nevertheless, John says, sin does not have dominion over you. Sin is not your destiny. Struggle and defeat. I'm just a lowly worm, barely making it through life, through the sin. John is saying, struggle and defeat are not your destiny. He's saying, church, you need a higher eagle-like vision for your life. You are God's child. That is your destiny. You are filled with his spirit. And you have the very power in yourself. God's seed himself lives in you. You have the power to rise above temptation and Sin. You can live in victory. What kind of victory? The real life of the age to come. Joy, peace, settledness, contentment, regardless of your physical circumstances. Real life, the rich and satisfying life that Jesus said is yours to have. Now, of course, I have to believe that in John's mind, the greatest sin is failure to love. And so John spends the balance of the chapter driving home this point once again. Let's continue reading. Verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we've passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates his brother, another brother or sister, is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life, real life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. And so we ought also to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion... How can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. And so we'll be confident when we stand before God. And even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. He knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence and we'll receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and we do the things that please him. So John says, verse 11, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And then he takes a detour through an Old Testament story about Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And he uses that as an object lesson in a lack of love. And then he lands in verse 14 and says, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we've passed from death to life. And so the real test of walking in the light is love. John has been saying this now over and over, right? And he suggests that a lack of love for our brothers and sisters may indicate you're not really God's child and haven't been born from above after all. He offers the test of love. You may claim to be a Christian. You can go to church or small group. You can worship regularly. You can give offerings. You can do good deeds, other religious activity. But do you love others? That's the test. This is the proof that we're walking in the light and we know and love God. 
So what does God's kind of love look like? Well, John illustrates. Now, it's not an exhaustive list in verse 16, but illustrative. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, and so we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters also. So love is, in John's mind, the willingness to surrender that which has value to our life to enrich the lives of others. That's God's kind of love. This is agape, God's kind of selfless, uh, non-performance-centered, all-giving sacrifice. Unlike Cain, who was the supreme example of hate, we should be like Christ, who is the supreme example of sacrificial love. He gave up his life. And then, as if we're just a little dull of hearing or hard-hearted still, John details what this Christ-like, selfless, all-giving, sacrificial love looks like in verse 17. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? So real love meets the practical needs of its brothers and sisters. If we have sufficient resources upon which to live and with which to make prudent provision for the future, then the balance of what we have is to be available to God who owns it all anyway and to be used at his direction, at his discretion. Now, truly, that is a different way of living, but it is the way of love. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I live with open-handed generosity like that as proof that I'm walking in the light. Now, of course, for John, our actions always speak louder than our words. Did Did you notice that? It's never enough to say that we have faith or love or that I'm a Christian, for that matter. We're to show. We're to both believe and behave. Verse 18, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Now, the verses 19 to 22 are considered by scholars to be grammatically confusing, and they've had considerably difficulty uh, interpreting them, and so I'm not going to try to either. (laughs) Frankly, uh, I mean, I could offer you some, you know, reasonably intelligent and cogent thoughts about what walking in the light and our heart condemning us and all that kind of stuff means, but honestly, my opinion probably doesn't even hold water compared to like the opinions of those who have gone before me. And I would just say this bottom line, uh, your conscience, the image of God, the light of God in you always says do right. But a lot of us don't know what do right means because we haven't been properly trained. And so there are times when we think we're doing right and our hearts condemning us or judging us, because ultimately only God is right, and living a life of love is always right. And so if you're feeling guilty or not guilty about a course of action, I live with open-handed generosity, or, boy, I can't be too prudent, you know, and that's careless, that's taking this love thing way too far, you know. All those things can, like, wreak havoc in knowing what to do in any certain situation. And I think John is telling us, your conscience can't be trusted. It can judge and condemn you. But bottom line, God is always right. And living a life of sacrificial love is always the right thing. Well, he comes full circle again in verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another 
just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know that he lives in us because his spirit that he gave us lives in us. It's like John keeps coming back and landing the plane at the same spot. Believe in Jesus and love others. Believe and behave. Singing the same chorus to this repetitive worship song again and again. Believe and behave because the behavior that God is looking for in us as his children is to learn to love. Well, friends, after four weeks, I hope we're not getting tired of singing the same old song over and over again. Rather, that with our heads, with our hearts, with our our hands, we would join in the chorus and we would rejoice that we are God's children, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live above sin and live a life of love for others. Uh, And so that we could stand before him when he appears with confidence on the day of his appearing. Lord, I pray that you would empower each of us to be those men and women and children who won't shrink back from the day you're made visible because we're walking in the light. We're living lives of love as you enable us by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that that's a challenge. It's easy to talk about it. It's not so easy to live. And so I pray that you'd empower each of us to learn to love. Lord, learn to love our families, those that are close by us, uh, our, our our neighbors, our classmates, our workmates, our extended family, those that are nice and kind and those that are mean and ugly, that we'd really be demonstrating that we're walking in the light because we're filled with your Holy Spirit living lives of love. Nothing more important than that. Nothing harder than that. Come Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, as we give ourselves to you in in the offering, giving to you, money that we've worked hard to earn as proof that we love you. We give these gifts and we lift up our voices in song to say, uh, please accept these tokens for what they are, evidence that we love you. In your name.